Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green, live with actual visible food on his sweater tonight, I'm happy to say. And? Hi, Andy. And Christian Matska. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Tonight we are here to have a part two in our series exploring H.R. Geeker's Beast, the alien, the xenomorph, whatever you want to call it. Um, And we brought our two contributing hosts, Andy and Christian, and we're probably going to expand this even wider to have like a formal roundtable, but we just wanted to get more perspective on the beast. And as we move into aliens and discuss the iteration of the creature and aliens and how that changed and what it means to you guys and when it scared you, if it scared you and that kind of a thing. Um, and like, what was your first, when you first saw it, what was your reaction to it? Whether it was when you were a child or maybe as you got older and you realized, okay, I know what I'm looking at now and it scared you. So that's kind of the setup for tonight's episode. I think eventually we should, we should keep expanding this round table for like, so, you know, we'll do this, then we'll do the round table. Then we should just start inviting just people we know on and then eventually end up with an episode with 30,000 people. people. Everybody's just <laughs> talking. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So who wants to start? Well, Andy's pointing at me, so. (laughs) Um, I do have a sort of weird story about the xenomorph or the alien. So when I was a kid, my uh, my dad was a a Lutheran pastor and his office was in the front room of our house. And I had this dream one night, and this is years before I saw aliens, but I had this dream that I had walked into his office and immediately looked up and there was this black form on the ceiling that was elongated and had a tail and it pounced on me. And it was literally the scariest dream that I had ever had at that point. And I, 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 I wrote about it and I tried to draw pictures of it and all this stuff. Uh, and so then watching aliens, I'm like, son of a gun, that's the thing. And of course it didn't have the elongated head necessarily, but just the proportions and the way that it was a, a sort of a predatory, it was something on the ceiling that jumped on me, you know, <laughs> it was scary. And 
I don't know if it's a, a, a reoccurring thing, but in certain um, exhibits of Giger's work, they'll they'll have this. I think it's a prototype for the Alien Three version, but they'll mount it up on the wall above people, and I've seen photos of it. And I said, That's it. That's the thing I had a dream about. So I've never really had aliens dreams post seeing the movies, but I have this weird pre viewing um, nightmare that. I have to, I have to say as part of this whole thing, I can't separate mm. it from my love of this creature because on some level at its most basic form, it was already in my head. It was already something that was mm. scary to me. Can yeah. I ask about that? Is it, was this wasn't like a sleep paralysis. This was like a dream dream. It was a dream dream. It was, I mean, I was, I was sunk in, but I wasn't, when you say sleep paralysis, I think about that waking I'm awake, but my body isn't kind of yeah. thing. It wasn't like that, but I was trapped in that dream until this thing grabbed me and then I woke up. Because what you're describing is very commonly experienced by people with sleep paralysis, where they see a dark figure coming towards them and then it kind of like runs at them and then they wake up very suddenly. And it ah. happened to me once when I was a kid and it was absolutely terrifying. And it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about. That's interesting. Yeah, I had sleep paralysis about six weeks ago, like uh, a, a night terror when I couldn't wake oh. up from the dream and I... I was trying to like move my head and I was asleep, but I was awake. It was horrible. Crazy. <laughs> Ooh, it was scary. That's interesting because um, most of my vivid nightmares as a child was also involved a lot of shadows and just images from above. Cause I used to have this creepy tree outside my window. And when the light, when the moonlight was particularly bright, it would cast these weird shadows on my wall. And kind of from the angle you were describing, like it would sort of hit my ceiling. Um, and I think I had the same thing. I never really dreamed about the alien after, but it was a lot of nightmares just involved shadows and suffocation, which obviously is a big you know, theme within that film. So I think it definitely preys on our base fears that we don't even know we have until, you know, we're in our quote unquote rest stage. Um, and that's when they come out, which is, you know, what Giger, basically how Giger formed all of these images in his mind anyway. Um, so that's interesting. Um, going back when I was listening to your original um, roundtable on this and I forgot who it was. Somebody said their first experience was through Spaceballs. That was mine, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, my first uh, introduction was Spaceballs, and then I saw Aliens. So um, I didn't have that, and I think most of us, right, saw Aliens first. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't. I. I. I am still jealous of people who saw Alien and experienced that horror for the first time. Um, so, having said that, when and when I saw Aliens. The image that stuck with me the most was of the um, the colonist, the the woman colonist uh, cocooned in the wall. That I to me was the most horrifying because of what a lot of the themes you guys were talking about of lack of control, knowing the fate that is about to befall you, and not being able to do anything about that. Um, so. That was my first experience. And that was something that haunted me was her less so than the actual alien itself. Like what was about to come? What was about to happen? Stop getting over here. We got a live one. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Please. Kill me. Just stay calm. We're going to get you out of here. 
gonna be all right. Uh, give me a hand. We gotta get her out of here. Convulsion! Get back! I think, like, with my first experience being aliens, and I discussed this, or Patrick and I discussed this a little bit, but in aliens, you're not, you don't see the the beasts, the you know, the warriors, the drones, whatever you want to call them, um, that clearly they're kind of running and darting, and you see silhouettes of them, and maybe you see one open its mouth, but you don't really see them. And then, and as a kid, like, I remember really not knowing what I was looking at, and then you see the queen, and I'm like, oh wow, cool. It wasn't she wasn't really scary to me, but then. Years later, when I see Alien for the first time, and you see Lambert to look up and that look on her face, um, and then you the camera is like panning down the that long head, and I remember as you know a teenager not knowing what, what where's this camera going like what is this where's it I didn't know and his mouth was closed at that moment so you're seeing this long big thing stand up and I remember thinking like oh my god what is that. And it scared me to death. Um, but and I'm kind of glad I saw aliens on TV because I don't I don't really remember like what the creatures look like. I do remember that one scene, you know, the chestburster scene, but I couldn't see it. I, they they put a pillow over the television or whatever. They weren't gonna let me, you know, I was 10, they weren't gonna let me watch it. Um, rightly so, thank God. Um, but yeah, alien for me was that first like holy, like it's you know and that's probably really the only part of it you fully see i mean you see the body but it the, the only other time i feel like you really see the body in any details when it's on the narcissist with ripley and it's laying down but you only see like a fraction of it um yeah that that alien reveal was terrifying for me you know jamie what you're talking about with the reveal um with lambert and coming down the head and the way that, with the mouth closed and the angle that it's at that it almost feels like it's infinite. Like it just mm-hmm. keeps curving and, and it becomes more sinister. And I believe that in aliens, the reveal of the queen where her cowl, her head is retracted and then comes forward in a weird way is very similar to that because mm-hmm. the first time we pan down to the queen's head, there is no head. It's mm-hmm. sort of this, there's a void and then it comes out and boy, that's a, that's a powerful expansion of which is kind of what we're going to talk about tonight of what can you do with Giger's original that is interesting and i i the queen for me is is a knock out of the park interesting okay knocked so, it out of the park yeah not knocked out of the park did a home it's run also it's a sports, <laughs> a sports <slam>. <laughs> welcome to the fourth inning how dare you there's uh it's it, uh, christian i'm glad you pointed that out about the queen reveal because what we also see in that moment or what we what we hear in that moment is is almost as confusing as anything else right like there's no visible head but there's like this hyperventilating breathing, this yeah. shuddering breathing noise happening, right? Which is similar to what we talked about in our previous episode. You know, when Brett gets taken, there's there's this you know collision of of like sensory confusion happening, right? How the first time we see the creature up, you know, and it's full grown form, there's like water flying everywhere. And it's just like this, just completely disorienting vision. The first time we see the queen similarly, right? We're not actually even looking at its face yet. So like our, our brain is trying to figure out like where, what, where's the eyes on this thing? Where's the mouth on this thing? And why is it breathing so heavily? There's this sense of like disorientation. And I think that's part of why the queen really captures, I think this beautifully Giger-esque aspect. And it's part of why Giger had tremendous respect for it. He loved the queen design, which is, which is really cool. 
Um, he had issues with other things in the movie, but the queen uh, was something that he really admired from the beginning. And he always made a, when he talked about it, point of saying James Cameron's queen design, how much he liked James Cameron's queen design, giving him you know, really mm-hmm. credit for it. Something I want to go back to for a moment that's interesting uh, about, so, so one of the, th- the reasons why I think Alien holds up so well is of course that we don't see the full creature very much at all in the entirety of the thing. And we also don't see the creatures and aliens very well for the entire you know, runtime, but they're for two very different reasons, right? In Alien, it's because like Balaji couldn't move with the suit because the suit was like this incredibly complicated thing that kept ripping open and it was impossible to get through any openings and things. So like they had to just scrap a lot of the footage because it just looked terrible when it was moving, which of course meant that then the movements that looked, you know, right were the ones that were the least human looking because they were like you know they were eddie powell on the drop line or they were things that were you know kind of unorthodox aliens of course like the main concern that james cameron had from the beginning with the creature was movement because he was like you know that was a huge problem with the first one in this one we want to have a war sequences we want to have a lot of motion we want things to be mobile so the suits had to be of course the unitards with the things glued on and that meant that again he had to obscure what you were able to see a lot of the time because if you could see it you'd be like that's like a dance costume with glued on pieces right so uh, in both cases, I think part of why the creature holds up so well is because of the very deliberate usage of what you're allowed to look at. What's interesting with Giger is that his artwork is something that when we look at, I don't know about you, but I, I, I feel very viscerally uncomfortable still after all of these years of having seen his artwork. I've had this real sense of like almost wanting to cover my eyes a little bit or feeling like I don't want to like look right at it because it's like really weird. Uh, so his artwork even does the same thing. It's a sense of like, you don't want to look at it too directly because it's almost too, uh, it's almost like too much to to take in. So yeah, I just want to kind of throw that out there. There's interesting parallels with the movies. You know, the necessity is the mother of invention. And basically both films had a specific need that was manifest by either not being able to do something or like you said, you know, relying on movement. It's the jaws effect, basically, you know, it's working with what you have, which makes these films like who knows what these films would have been if we could have seen everything, if they could have shown us everything. So I, I have such an appreciation for it. We've talked about it, the practical, you know, doing what they could use use of lighting being it really sparked the creativity to work with what they had which i think made the product even better right we can do anything now and sometimes it's too much and we're overwhelmed and i think limitation is such a creative driving force um that makes these films what they are. So I just wanted to point that out. Well, Patrick and I were discussing under the skin context of the score earlier, but we touched upon this idea of not knowing. And to Patrick's point about looking at Giger's work, even as it relates to his creature, um, which, you know, was there were, there were two iterations of before Necronomicon and then one other place where it was a version. I mean, he wasn't setting out to make an alien. He just was creating, but you can look at it. And you can look at his work in general, and obviously it's very sexual, it's very phallic, there's kind of orifices and just all sorts of things going on, but we don't know what we're looking at. We don't know, which makes it scary, because our, we're geared to kind of figure things out. What are we looking at here? What's it doing? Our, and we're 
we're gauging for danger levels uh, in, in any respect, or do I need to be careful? Do I need to walk slower? Do I need to walk faster? Is this a threat or am I a threat to it? Like we're, we're gauging all of, all of these things, even in art and, and things that we engage as, you know, in terms of entertainment, what are we watching? Is this good? Is it not good? Like, how is this hitting us? But with Giger's work for me, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know. And it's sexual too. So it gets, it kind of passes the veil. So it's like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And it's scary because it looks like it's wants to pleasure me and kill me at the same time, which is just a horrible thing. Um, which is again, a conversation we are having around the film under the skin, which that not knowing. And I think why Giger is so successful with his beast is because to earlier points that we made in a couple episodes back, we look at it and we don't know what, what we're looking at. And it is oblivion. It is, we essentially gauge from this thing that it wants our death. Maybe, maybe, maybe it does, or it wants to use our life to procreate or something, or it wants to reuse us to reproduce, um, which is even worse a fate in my opinion. But as we continue this conversation about the beast, uh, I think, what happens in, in aliens, in my opinion, is that it becomes more knowable as a beast and less interesting. So I'll, I'll throw that out there. Okay. I think that one of the big issues first, <laughs> is are the aliens portrayed as cannon fodder in aliens? And if so, does that diminish them or diminish their, their threat level or their mystique? Ripley shoots the creature in the first film with a grappling gun in the, in the final scene of the movie. And that grappling gun goes right into it and sticks. So that opens the door right there, that 10 millimeter caseless ammunition, um, explosive tip, caseless ammunition is definitely going to do damage to the alien. And in fact, in aliens, when Gorman fires his VP 70 at the alien that's approaching him and Vasquez, you can, if you slow it down, the bullets bounce off the front of its head. So a smaller caliber weapon does no damage, but a grappling hook in the first film sets the precedent. Yes, you can kill these things. So when David Geller and Walter Hill say, we want soldiers versus aliens, that's what you get. And you're going to have alien fatalities as well as human fatalities. I don't think I, it being more killable means, means it's less knowable, by the way. Okay. Did the um, grappling hook pierce it or did it just through the force knock it out of the airlock? It pierced it. It's it stuck did. in there and, and knocked that, it out. It did both. It did everything. Because didn't it's the grappling amazing. hook remain? I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's the, stuck it, in that's because that's why it bounces it's, back. Yeah, it's floating. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. And it holds itself in. And yet, we went over that inch by inch and found no evidence of the creature you described. <laughs> that's an interesting part. Uh, and did you notice that in Alien State, the grappling hook is still in the door yes. when the salvage team cuts the door <laughs> open? I love that. I'm going to defend aliens <laughs> as much as I can. Um just about everything that happens in aliens, as far as creature effects, um, first happened in alien. I feel like James Cameron was taking notes, watching the movie saying, okay, I'm going to have a character get lifted off the ground because just like when, when Brett is lifted up by the alien, it makes no sense. We don't know how the alien is doing that. And the same thing happens with Dietrich. The alien swoops down, grabs her, pulls her up in the air. I don't know how that happens. It's uncanny and it's, it's very startling. Weirdly, there's no visible um, uh, head trauma. You know, we don't see the, the inner mouth actually puncture anyone in aliens. Although I think it's heavily implied that that's what happens to Pharaoh inside the dropship. But anyway, 
but the movement of the aliens is vastly different. Like, like Andy was saying, like you guys were saying, there's, they had to do different things to, I mean, okay. It's the problem I have with making more alien content is until you can figure out how to honor what happened in the first film, the way that it moved, any extrapolation has to continue to honor that first film. And I feel like from resurrection on, they don't because Jurassic Park had come out and they said, oh, Velociraptor, that's how we deal with this alien. Every single film after that, that's how it moves. Clever girl. Even Alien Isolation, they, they desperately wanted to do exactly what we saw in the first film. And they, they just found that they couldn't do, what do you call it? The, the backbending legs, the, the dog style legs. Oh, yeah. oh. They had to go with those because they, when they tried to do it uh, with human legs walking around, it just looked ridiculous. And I think that on some level, the creative team of whatever next project it is, uh, Noah Hawley or whatever, they have to figure out a way to make the alien move that doesn't look like a velociraptor and maybe doesn't hop like a kangaroo like James Cameron had it do. But somehow, and this is going to get back to what you were saying, Jamie, I swear, by taking away that enigmatic movement in the first film, every time you don't honor that, you also lose some of the possibility that this creature is sentient or equally as smart as a human. When you watch the first film, it is not necessarily an animal. It could very well be just alien. You watch the second film, and now we're into more of an animalistic or insect style uh, uh, structure to their society and the things they're doing. And Patrick, you know, when we were talking about um, special edition versus theatrical cut of aliens, you made such a good point about if, if they're, and you used a fantastic word that I can't remember, but attrition, like if they're willing to kill a hundred of themselves to get someplace, is that actually better? Does that give us more knowledge about the alien versus they're so crafty that while we were fighting amongst ourselves, they snuck in the back. So those are some of my thoughts. I just want to throw up before I forget this idea, just, you know, you're talking about movement, Christian, which is valuable. I would love to see Noah Hawley, for example, who is listening. Thank you, Noah, for listening to our show for ideas for your series right now. Uh, big fan. I would love to see like a Jacob's Ladder approach. You guys see that movie, Jacob's Ladder? Oh, yeah. Robbins oh, yeah. from 1924. Um, you know how like the, there are frames missing from the motion of the mm-hmm. of the of the apparitions in it, and it's and it's moving in an uncanny way. If we're going to show the creature moving, to me a, a huge, and this isn't necessarily a debating alien versus aliens show, but we are kind of talking about the way the design changes. Uh, for me, the movement in Aliens, which was the main focus that Cameron had, like I was saying, that's why he hired you know dancers and stuntmen and gymnasts and things. Um, the, the movement in aliens to me is like the most distracting part of it because it's so clearly predatory and it's so cl- to me clearly modeled on like animals that I recognize. Right. So mm-hmm. although the Dietrich death, you're absolutely right, is, 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 a, is a truly uncanny moment because it doesn't make any sense. And I, I, I do like that. Um, I, I think something I, I don't want to keep bringing up under the skin, but I'm going to because we just watched it and just talked about it a lot. Something that I love about under the skin which again is by Jonathan Glazer from 2013. If anybody hasn't seen it yet, Scarlett Johansson is in it. She's incredible. It's a really, really amazing movie um, about an alien creature, but a very different type of alien creature. We we can't fathom a lot of what we're seeing. So we're left with just this question of like, what the fuck is going on? Which to me is of course an alien concept. Giger's artwork and, and basically all the work that he did on the first film is a continuation of that question of like, what am I looking at? To Cameron's credit, he understood that hugely. And, and, you know, even though, for example, they got rid of the, the dome in the second film, 
they still have, you know, these little indentations from where the eye sockets would have been. The the idea being, it still has that uncanny aspect of like, where where are its eyes? Is it looking at me? What is it doing? So like, he understood that. But uh, he also said things like, the last thing you see before a predator, you know, gets you is its teeth, right? And that was like a, a guiding design principle for him and the and the Stan Winston team as they were creating this stuff was they wanted it to feel more menacing and more predatory, like a pack animal. And to me, that personally kind of gets away a little bit from what Giger was doing, which was a truly ambivalent and uncanny thing where you just didn't know what you're looking at so yeah so that's to me that's that's something i get hung up on with aliens sometimes and that's the knowable a little bit more knowable issue that i have with aliens in terms of oh okay there's a queen and there's a not that any of those things like it's present i mean we all agree aliens is a masterpiece i always agree um I think what is truly alien is truly unknowable. Um, we don't know what it's doing. We don't know what what those things are. For instance, the design of the creature, the the tubes on its back. Some people say, oh, yeah, they throw their prey or whatever. We don't know that for sure. Those things are really unsettling. And certainly we know that they were designed to offset the to balance it out a little bit. So it was more of an aesthetic choice. But that works so well because it probably in its own physiology, it operates in some way. They need them, they use them, but we don't know why. And I, I'm fine not knowing why. I'm fine not knowing what those things are used for. Um, and I mean, if you look at the shoulder and those things that come, its shoulder and the, all the tubes in its long head, and why is it head, its head that long? We have no idea. What's going on back there? Possibly it's really intelligent. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe its brain is like a, maybe it's, it's a whale. Its brain is this big and its head is huge. I don't really know, but I, I like this. I like that we can talk about Giger's design and say, well, we don't know why it's like this. We don't have any idea what those tubes on its, you know, carapace or its chest are doing or what is, you know, is it like a still suit? Is it, is it feeding its oxygen? Is it, what is it doing? Is it helping it adapt to whatever climate it's in? I don't know. And I like saying, I don't know. And in alien three, you're back to that. Like, well, it kind of moves like a dog, but what's it really doing? We don't really know what it's doing. We don't really, it's, it's off in the caves. Whereas in aliens, we kind of do know a little bit more what it's doing. It's like, Oh, there's the queen. Oh, okay. She's laying the eggs. There's the warriors and the drones and they're helping her out. And I'm like, okay. And I think to me, it diminishes a little bit, but at the same time, what counterbalances it is the story and Ripley's arc and what's going on with the characters. The writing of the characters are so powerful that it doesn't really matter. Um, although there's that one scene when, you know, Ripley and Hicks get into the elevator and they're waiting and that thing swoops right down. That's one of the scariest things I've ever seen in a movie. Like that is fucking terrifying. Um, just the way it moves, it's, it's moving a little bit differently. We don't really know where it's coming from and just, just how they shot it and everything. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the most classic scenes in all of the films. And I hope that we see more of that, that kind of thing in Holly's version of it, but whatever the case is, I just, I love what's unknowable and I love to be scared. I'm always trying to find, figure out what can scare me. And it's very little, there's very little films out there that scare me and alien, the first alien. And when we are introduced to it, it scares the shit out of me still just seeing that thing slowly unknowingly creep and walk and hide and trace yeah. around the crew. You guys all know I aliens is my fave. However, I agree with you. I think aliens 
is more of fears that we are conscious of, our, our waking fears, predators that we recognize. Like you were saying, the last thing we see is the teeth, right? Things that we, I mean, not so much now in modern society, but just predators that we know, and there's a certain fear of what we know. And whereas alien is the nightmare, is the subconscious, is all of those shadows, like you were saying, these shapes that were vaguely resemble something, but don't, something should be there, but it's not, something's there that we can't recognize. And I think that is the more horrifying, right? That's the more, the unknowable is more horrifying. Um, As a kid, when I saw Alien, after Aliens, it terrified me more so than, Aliens is more thrilling, right? And that those shocks, those scares, you know, the, the elevator scene where it's coming out at you, there's a certain adrenaline rush, but the, that just horrifying sort of, you know, garden of earthly delights, almost the third panel of horror that's coming at you from the first one. I think, you know, I think it's just a subconscious versus conscious fears. And I love the two juxtaposed together. I think both are scary just in different ways, but I think the unknowable or the unknown is, is more horrifying for sure. There's, there's two moments in the first film that no film since has touched, which would be for me, the water dripping up the egg before Cain has, has, you know, before it's opened. Um, And then of course, Lambert's death, the, the unknown awful implications of her death. There's nothing like that in aliens, every single death they're either carried off and we know what happens to them or their, or their death is shown. And the idea of that, the, the dripping water being like a reversal of gravity or, or it's a dream. It's a terrible, terrible dream situation um, would completely be at odds with that uh, very, very grounded action that Cameron brings to the second film. And I don't know that any film since it's actually one of the big, for me, one of the big failings of the prequels is that Ridley Scott, I wanted, I wanted, you guys just covered it for, for your, uh, for the, the soundtrack thing, the, um, it's not called oblivion. It's not called what's the annihilation, annihilation, annihilation. Annihilation. I want annihilation to be a prequel to alien. I want that kind of completely unknown, you know, mind fuck kind of situation. And instead what we get in the prequels, it's so much more like Cameron's, this is very predictable. The, you know, the, the, the engineers pilot a ship by moving objects around. It just, no, I want, I want like they scream and the ship flies, you know, or just something crazy. And finally, I, I feel like alien three really cements the idea that the creature is an animal. Like, I don't feel like the third film elevated the creature back to what the first film had, but it doesn't reduce it to a velociraptor. So there's that at least. Clever girl. I think the, there are stretches in the third film where I do feel that that mystery come back. I mean, one of the famous ones is when it doesn't kill Ripley after Clemens, at Clemens' death scene, when it comes right up to her face. That's a moment of like confusion and, you know, ambivalence, I think, which is nice. It would have been if the opening credits hadn't told us everything about what the whole story was. That's the, the biggest feeling of that movie is the first 30 seconds. We know <laughs> she's got a face hugger on That's her face. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. 
And, and she spends the whole goddamn movie trying to figure out what the audience has known from the opening credit sequence. But we're not here to discuss Alien 3. So. <laughs> <laughs> we got some hot takes tonight. What, what's, interestingly about, what's interesting about that point, though, Christian, a lot of people didn't notice that. A lot of people kind of weren't sure what they were seeing. They saw that. It's obvious to us. We know what we're looking at. We know what we were looking for. By the time Alien 3 came out, I was a hardcore fan at that yep. point. I knew... Um, but I didn't, I know I hadn't seen it. So I had to wait on everyone else to tell me actually what happened. So a lot of people didn't pick that up for whatever reason. You can't blame I, it on cell phones that far back. They weren't looking it could at have been new. It could have been new. <laughs> but then we that. have, nah, but then we have the autopsy. But it could have crawled out of her mouth. Like in the comic book. Yeah. Let's save this for the Alien 3. <laughs> We're going to have. Okay. <laughs> it is the 35th anniversary this year. Of this, it is. Of this 30th. 30th. 35th. 30th, 30th. 30th. Yeah, that's right. 30th. 2022. Yeah, 92. I, I don't know what We're not that old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, Just quick, how yeah. many of you saw Alien 3 in the theater? Jamie wasn't able to. Patrick was a baby. I did. Andy and I saw it. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, I cheated, and the novelization came out before, and I snuck a peek, and I knew, and I was like, horrible. <laughs> I knew what happened. <laughs> I never do that, but I just, I couldn't wait, but that's a discussion for another time. But yes, I did see yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think there are stretches in, in the movie that re- retain some of that mystery. Again, there's, there's a sense of like, where is it and where did it go and why is it waiting? And, you know, it's, it's kind of unseen to, to me, to me, like the first third to half of that movie retains a lot of the mystery of the first film. But it's also colored by the fact that we've all seen aliens. And so we know what, what it's, you know, doing and we know like why, what we think its motivations might be. And then, you know, with the queen facehugger, et cetera, you know, things become clear. Anyway, there's a huge issue that we have in modern movies that is exemplified by prequels and the prequel, you know, mania more than anything else, where we need to have exposition to explain absolutely every single aspect of anything. And there has to be so much lore embedded in everything that we consume now, right? Like you can't just present something to people. You have to explain all the reasons why you're presenting it to them. And that's something that the prequels obviously in terms of aliens suffer from hugely. But I think just in general, movies are suffering from that now where you can't just present something, you know, strange and have people come up with their own backstories for it or talk to each other about it. And you have to have like footnotes upon footnotes and you have to have like, you know, brand Bibles that go out there and you have to have all these tie-in materials for franchising purposes and they have to make sense in a cohesive way. And I think that what was so liberating about Alien and about Giger, I mean, there were so many decisions that Ridley Scott made that were so brilliant in the first film. Obviously, like that's, that's you know, the, the first the Alien film cemented him as one of the great filmmakers. And it's for really valid reasons. He was working with this ungainly costume as a, you know, young filmmaker who was just trying to make his mark. It was his second feature film. He was trying to like somehow deliver it in time and under budget. And he was getting all this pushback from all these studio executives the whole time. And he was forced to come up with these really novel solutions to make this creature feel as other as he possibly could. And he did things that are still studied in film schools today that were so novel for the time in terms of how he filmed it, in terms of like getting, you know, this wonderful, like nobody watching the movie thinks that it's not Balaji Badejo in the, in the Brett death sequence, because he framed the alien in a way that you can't tell that the guy's a foot shorter almost. Right. There's amazing, amazing slights of hand happening. All of it, literally all of it is in camera, you know, and then in, in, of course, the prequels, he has the opportunity to go back and do everything that he ever wanted to do. And it turns out that when you get the opportunity to do that, like Andy was saying, you end up losing a lot of the mystery. There's this ineffability to the first film 
that you can't get if you have tools to do everything that you could possibly want to do because you have to make strange decisions to make things work. Like, for example, the water trickling upwards on the egg, right? The sweating ovomorph. Like, that makes no fucking sense. But it's something that he, you know, as they were filming it, they were like, let's try this. Let's see how this works. You know, let's see. Let's have a fucking laser field. Let's try these things. Cause like, well, I don't know. It'd be weird. It'd look cool. Let's try it out. That sense of experimentalism, I think is something that is led to them hiring somebody like a Swiss surrealist artist to come and just create a, an entire set for them and a soundstage. It's, it's just, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd creative decisions, but it's creative. That's something that I, I just treasure so much about that creature and about the design surrounding it. It's a gamble to be creative. It requires something that I don't think studios are willing to do now, which is that gamble. As divisive as there are, I mean, as much issues we have with the prequels, there are some, you know, in terms of lore and mystery, there are there is some of that there. Um, even like in Covenant, even though I know even you, Patrick, there's some people have issue with like the presentation of the beast. I know we're going to get to sort of the legacy and the, as we move along and we'll cover the prequels more in terms of what the beast looks like. But there's that scene before, after they find the girl killed and her head's floating in the pool. And you see that now it's not Giger's classic monster, but it's a, architecturally it is. It's standing there and it's kind of like, it's like breathing. It's like weird and you see the face and it's just kind of pulsating and to me that was terrifying because you don't know what this thing is doing why it's just standing there what its purpose is uh, i mean it seems to be a killer for sure but i also think that most of the time from again what's knowable about you know human or what's in our world animals hunt or animals kill usually when they hunt it's rare that they kill just for sport. Now, some animals will kill, not maybe for sport, but if they're if they're if they feel like something's encroaching upon their territory, or there's there's like wars between tribes, whether it's orangutans or whatever. Why that creature, the neomorph, maybe that's what it's called, killed. What's her name? Ridiculous. Rosenfeld. Rosenfeld. Yes. It was Ro- um, I think it's Rosenthal. 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 It is Rosenthal. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Rosenfeld. Isn't Rosenfeld from Frankenstein? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Krantz, I don't know. Like, we don't know yeah, why Elden it killed Stern. her. We don't know what, the, unless it felt threatened by her, which I can't imagine it would. It just killed her. But I really think that there were elements in the prequels in terms of the, the creatures that we're seeing, certainly even the engineers, which aren't technically creatures. There's they're humanoid species, but they're mysterious. We don't know what the fuck is up with them. We don't know what they want. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know much about them at all, which makes them terrifying. And I thought that the neomorph, and and again, I know we're going to get into this eventually later in fall, maybe on a roundtable or a larger roundtable. Um, but I really thought that 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 moment was truly, truly terrifying um, because we had no idea, and it was like nine feet tall, and so they're looking up at this thing, and you can't tell anything about it even with the the traditional big chap it might not have eyes but you can kind of gauge where it's at by seeing its teeth or not whereas with that thing the neomorph you don't like what is going on inside there what are you what is this you had no idea and that to me is truly terrifying hmm. the funny thing about that sequence is that it's preceded by the the worst it's that golem shot of here's golem climbing up the rock wall like we, we cut away from any of our characters to this omniscient um, viewpoint of the alien, of the neomorph crawling or climbing into the facility. And I hate that shot. 
if the thing had just shown up or dropped down behind her, I would be, I would have loved that scene so much more. It's it's already a, a, a complicated scene because it's so clearly this person needs to walk away from everyone else so that they can get murdered. But by actually showing us the creature getting into the into the engineer facility, it just it makes me upset. I don't mean to badmouth the prequels though, because in the first film in particular, in Prometheus, when we see the um the bas relief that looks to be either a deacon or an alien or something, there's a, a green stone on a pedestal. And I'm fascinated with what that represents because it in the trailers, it isn't even there. Instead, it's the it's the bowl that the engineers used in the opening sequence. And some sometime between when the trailer was cut and when the movie came out, they swapped it for this weird green mm. glowing crystal or something, but it feels very much like a, an offering almost. And that's an interesting clue into what this, this creature in the bas relief represents to the engineers. So that's cool, but it's not dripping up. It's not that, you know how in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, there's all those moments where uh, the natural laws stop making sense. When you're, when you're in Dracula's castle, things are different. That's what I would like for the alien world. And we don't get that in Aliens. That's, that's exclusively to that first film. And it's amazing how many times Ridley Scott chose um, to embrace the weird, whether it was, yes. I'm going to just randomly repaint the set for this last scene because I feel like it. So, you know, just weird things that he did. Every first film in a franchise, and I hate that word, but every first film, the more you push what the parameters are, the better, because then the films that follow can play within that. And if you, if you are very narrowly defined, it's hard to break out of that because fans fall in love with the exact thing they see on screen. And one last point about that. There's a big disconnect between what fans fall in love with. What we saw on film is what we love. All the creative people involved though, H.R. Giger in particular, were so frustrated by how little of what they created showed up on film that to then have someone come and say, I only want that thing that was on film. I don't want the rest of your, I don't want the rest of your creations. Just give me that over and over again. How frustrating that must be. And I think that that actually goes to explain why the prequels are so different from Alien is that Ridley Scott also didn't want to only deliver on what he had done 30 or 35 years earlier. So as fans, we have to allow a little wiggle room for that of the, the creators always have more ideas. It's the thing, Andy, you were talking about like with Jaws or you think about how frustrated George Lucas must have been with Star Wars of not having the budget to do the thing. And then when they gave him the money, he made crap, you yeah. know? <laughs> so sometimes it's not best to go back to revisit the same thing. I do want to say too that because um, we're talking about the prequels somebody brought it up so to me there were we talked about this there were moments that were truly horrifying and as i look back um and compare those scenes with other scenes from the prequels or just in the original i think to what makes these scenes horrifying versus not is the actors selling it Right, I think that is a huge part of what makes these creatures terrifying is 
us not even, you know, sometimes we don't see the creature, we just see their face reacting to the creature and that's what sells it. And so going back to um, Covenant, the beginning part, I think most of us agree was there were moments of sheer terror because they sold it. And then when you go to the second half and they're all just kind of looking around, none of that was scary to me because I didn't buy that they were scared. You know, they didn't seem terrified. So I didn't seem terrified. So I think, you know, yes, it's obviously the creature design itself, but because we saw so little of it, it was a lot had to do with the actors. And I mean, look at the original. I mean, the caliber of these actors, I think, can't be undersold here. Um, so that's just my two cents, too. A lot of my some of my scariest moments were just their faces. Like we were going back to Lambert, right? Um, even like the eerie calm of Dallas, you know, and moments when he just start his breathing changed and he realized, oh no, right? Those that was terrifying to me because he knew it was coming. Just seeing his face, th- those, I think, the, both of those things together really added to the effect. You bring up a good point, Andy, in terms of the legacy of the creature and how effective it is, is the performance of the people in front of it, you know, or it's in front of and what sells an alien, what sells it is Lambert, what sells, you know, what sells the fear of the creature in alien three. I mean, Sigourney Weaver's performance right mm-hmm. next to that thing. She is terrified of her, out of her fucking mind. And yep. Sigourney Weaver has seen this thing before. Yeah. And to me, that's what I want the most from another alien, whatever show hopefully with holly i want these people to be genuinely afraid of what they're seeing and i know for me like for instance i went on a ride the last time i was at a um a theme park was in 2013 um i went on that like the giant drop at six flags where it takes you up 24 stories and then it drops you down i remember how scared i was think knowing that i was going to drop and not knowing when and like and then I thought they finally drop us. But my fear of what was happening, what was going to happen was greater than the actual drop itself, um, what my head was doing. And if the performers aren't selling the scarce, the audience isn't going to be scared. Um, the audience can be like, uh-huh, OK, whatever. And so I really think that that is paramount for the next iteration of it. I mean, maybe I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what design they're going to choose. But if I mean, I think the a realistic reaction for some people might be actual heart attack and death seeing something that terrifying you know um in in close proximity to them something they've never seen before something looking at them that's eyeless that's lidless that's that's kind of in their face many times i think people would just fall over dead because that's what fear will do to you and i think um that's what giger's original design like if you look at you know necronomicon again that thing is terrifying even with the big black you know the eyes that it has it's terrifying to look at and so my hope again is that we get some really believable and you know some believable reactions and but you know to to the point of the prequels one of the reasons why i love ferris so much and her performance and the whole thing is because she is terrified yes and i've not seen anyone that terrified in an alien film since aliens or actually since alien 3 with sigourney weaver and i thought this is what i'm after that's why i love that first 45 minutes because then you know in like covenant then they get to 
what's his name where he has the throat burster and they're all just kind of like oh oh but if that was actually happening to someone people would scatter scatter not knowing is this going to infect me they wouldn't like if something was coming up from someone like breaking through and you could tell that it wasn't normal people would scatter and they would be absolutely terrified and they weren't really but um ferris and what's his name's wife what's his her karen um they were authentically afraid and i just i could watch that scene over and over and over yeah that scene was absolutely the best alien content we've had since 1992 agreed yeah and i don't think that the actors in the second half of the film none of them are bad it just i don't think they were given the time the film is on such a breakneck pace to the point where we don't even actually see the second alien birth which is such a weird choice that um lope just oh yeah he died oh okay it's didn't just tell really him. weird <laughs> very strange yeah although um the lady in the shower much as i hate the shower scene she's scared that's a that's a powerful true emotional true. reaction so but I'm, I'm checked out at that point in that film so Oh, yeah. Now, I have a question for you guys. You all saw Aliens first. I wonder if, if my experience is similar to yours of, um, well, this part probably won't be, but I am permanently imprinted by the look of the alien in Aliens. That's my preferred alien. And when I went to see Alien afterwards, it looked different. And my first reaction was that I didn't like it. It didn't look enough like the alien that I knew. But I'm realizing part of that was probably... It also doesn't act as predictably. There's something, just the the whole alien, the first film is inherently very disquieting, very unsettling. And if you're coming from aliens first, especially as a teenager, um, you're going from a knowable scare to, it's it's the whole Giger thing. This is not only unknowable, but it's uncomfortable. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe I'm not supposed to be seeing this. And um, well, I absolutely love the first film and I love the design of the first film. It is funny that I still have this mental preference for what I see in the second film. So do you, do any of you, do, do, do any of you remember going from aliens to alien and being like, what the hell? You know, this is different. I no. was more scared with alien having a uh, second time. I don't remember ever being horrified by aliens to me it was like this is awesome (laughs) you know that was my reaction i i just and i think it was because i fell in love with the characters to me it was like characters first and then all the cool aliens and i love the queen i you know i love i love that scene to death but then when i i remember viscerally being frightened by certain moments in Alien. And I think it's because of that strangeness that it was more elegant but and weird and off-putting, right? It was unsettling more. Um, although I do remember at the end um, when he's, you know, when the alien creature is dangling from the narcissist and it was, it, it, to me, it looks like a guy in a suit. So it took away at the very end, a little bit of the horror. Um, but I, I just think it was it, just the oddity, the strangeness of it um, was more horrifying. I do. I still am more scared by alien than aliens. I'm going to throw a weird theory out. 
which is so speaking as somebody who is a little bit younger than the rest of you on the call tonight, a little bit. Uh, for, for me, it, you know, Alien Three came out when I was I was really a, a, a little child, and that and the Kenner toys came out when I was also a child. So for me, like the toyetic experience was really important as a kid. And as you all know, and as you know, anybody who's been in my office can see, it remains to this day like a big focus that I have, just like others on the team, you know. Uh, and so for for I think there's this intuitive understanding that the creatures as they appear in the second film are easier to play with. And I'm going to go somewhere with this that might make sense. By that, I mean, they were designed, the costumes were designed to be more movable. The dome was removed to be more durable because Cameron was, you know, concerned that it was going to break. Uh, and, you know, all of these, these design choices were made to make them more durable, more, you know, hardy, more maneuverable. And I think there's this intuitive awareness as a kid watching aliens that like, oh, I could like pretend to be that. Or like, I could, you know, I could, I can imagine like shooting that with my, you know, Nerf guns. There's this sense of like, this is something I can engage with that I think is really great about aliens. And I think that's part of why the creatures in aliens imprint on so many of us when we're little, it's because of all the things we've talked about tonight and that, you know, they're more understandable, but I think there's also just like a durability aspect to it. The, the creature in the first film comes across fragile. Of course, that's partly because as we've talked about in other episodes of the life cycle that, you know, is implied in the script, but not really, you know, overt in the film. So it is actually literally fragile by the end of the movie. So that by the time we're really seeing the full body shots of it, it's basically dying, which is interesting too. So by the time we we're able to see this thing revealed in all of its ferocity, it's actually near the end of its life cycle and it's less ferocious, which is also kind of confusing for us to look at. Uh, in Aliens, there's this like wonderful, like sort of like, you know, rock'em, sock'em, go get em aspect to the characters, which which I love and I think is a different design choice that makes it more knowable, but also kind of fun. There's like a fun aspect to the creatures in Aliens that I think holds up really well, personally. And I do love that design. For all of the relative crapping on Aliens that I do vis-a-vis -vis the first film, I do love what they did with the creature. I love the Stan Winston Studios effects. I love Cam Cameron is a brilliant visualist in his own right. And, you know, the design choices that he made in the film are incredible. I think that, you know, we, we get to see some really amazing looking stuff going on. It's just, uh, it's, it's less confusing to me and therefore feels less Giger-esque. Any of you have this memory or just, okay, this is going to sound weird. This is going to sound like something that Patrick would say, but when you see the alien in the air shaft with Dallas, my childhood memory is that it looked like it had cream cheese in its mouth. Like there's a, it's not the liquid. It's like, there's a white thick substance. Am I, and it grossed me out. It just, it made me really uncomfortable. <laughs> Does anyone else know what I'm talking about? There's a it's, whiteness. It's not as mucosal, like slimy. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. But oof. It's I was tough. fixated on its hands in that scene. Oh yeah. I couldn't get like, over the hands. Yes. That's was horrifying. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered just briefly about the mucosal thing. I wonder if it's the reflection from the silver teeth lining inside the Rimbaldi thing. Um, I, I think that because I think it's Dallas's incinerator unit illuminating the reflective mm, teeth and creating kind of like a little bit of a light field in its mouth. That maybe, maybe that's it. Saying. But Andy, yeah. you were saying something. Sorry about that. No, I, I was just talking about the hands. <laughs> So I, yeah, I was done. But the idea of being grabbed by that, there's nothing good that can come out of, you know, everyone jokes about free hugs, but seriously, it grabs him and it takes him. And then poor Parker has to climb in there. <laughs> I, I, 
the first episode I was on, you guys were talking about Parker. And that was the first time I ever really realized he went in there, mm-hmm. he got the incinerator. What the hell? I mean, he's the hero. Parker's the hero. <laughs> That's funny. Cause the last time I watched it, I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, yeah, he, like, I was really thinking about him in particular. He, when we, whenever we play the alien game, by the way, I have to be, I just want to be Parker. <laughs> I, I love, I, I have such a, newfound appreciation for him just listening to all your previous podcasts but yeah he he really is the hero in a lot of those moments um not to get off topic but i agree (laughs) to your question though christian i love the mouth of the creature in aliens more but i love the head in alien like Mm. and i've talked to patris about about this ad nauseum in terms of how he they move that mouth and how the lips quiver and if you look at insects if you see close-up of insects like video their mouths like they're doing these things almost autonomously they're moving they're they're they seem erratic and that he captured this and it's really unsettling when it's in the the uh the drop ship with pharaoh and you hear the door open or whatever you look and you see that thing that is one of the most terrifying moments in in the entire saga um, just the way it's moving and it, that mouth and it's slimy, but it's, it feels human too. Like mm. it's there just sitting there, just, just sitting there. Like it's going to kill her, but it's got other plans too. You know, like I don't, I can't describe it better than that, but there's something about moments of that in aliens where you can feel something else happening with them, but we don't know what, what it is, but you can feel it's like, I don't know. Like I, years ago, I went to, Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and I w- went to the where they have the silverback gorillas. And I don't know if you, how many of you guys have seen silverbacks up close. I would imagine all of you have. Um, and these things are giants. They're giants. They're the biggest creature I've ever seen in my life. That you know are locked up aside from like an elephant, which is just a completely different animal. Um, but I remember looking into. There was one just sitting there, and these things are silverbacks are like nine feet tall they're huge and they're like i mean they're they're huge and i remember this thing one sitting there in in the glass and i locked eyes with it and i had to turn away from it because i knew i was looking at something that wasn't an animal that wasn't just what we but it was also imprisoned and it really made me uncomfortable and i felt like i walked out of it thinking i can never look at these things again it felt almost immoral but it was really unsettling for me and i feel like when the alien is really effective, I feel the same way. And you just get this sense of like something else is going on here. It's not just an animal. It needs something. It wants something. It, it has a higher intelligence, but I think as the apex predator that we are, we sort of, um, we, even with whales, I mean, we've killed whales. We've killed the biggest creatures on the earth. Like it's no big deal. Um, but we are in fact, not the apex predator. There are others. There are other things that could, you know, grizzly bears that could tear us limb from limb. And that's terrifying, even though we've slaughtered grizzly bears all throughout, you know, our modern history. Um, but I think there's more there going on. And I think when why we love like dogs and we can look at pictures of dogs and see the whites of their eyes and go, oh, you know, because we're making this like human connection and i think when the alien is scary it's also because we're making a human connection because we know that something else is going on behind that not eyes but whatever it is it has 
I just want to say to that end, I think a, a huge reason why Giger's stuff is so frightening to us is because it suggests that humanoid aspect that you're talking about. And not only morphologically speaking, like it kind of looks like a person, but because a lot of his artwork suggests what could happen to us, right? What, you know, given the right adulterations or the right, you know, scientific experiments or something like we could do to ourselves. There's something, and of course that gets at the root of body horror, which is a huge part of why his stuff is so successful, but there's something about a lot of his artwork and a lot of the artwork that Dane and Matt did for covenant, especially, which I've talked about a lot that gets under my skin in a, in a, a way that is like wholly terrifying because it feels like something that recognizably human that has been transformed. And that's something that I think, you know, when I was talking earlier about almost wanting to cover my eyes sometimes when I look through at like one of these Necronom drawings, like that's coming out of this sense of like, that could be me. That could be somebody I know. There's this, this horrifying, like I see myself in it. And if I can see myself in artwork like that, then like, man, what fucking dreams must I be, you know, holding back from, from my waking reality? There's something about uh, something that he gets at that uh, is, is really frightening because it feels like it's the story of ourselves in a way. And of course, when we had Philip on Kennedy Johnson, you know, a few times last year, we were talking about some of his motivations in that first story arc, you know, this idea of that, that female alien like creature representing this, you know, like what we could do to ourselves if, you know, given time and the right pathogens, right. There's this sense of humanity will do whatever it takes to live forever. And um, in the process, what it takes might be very haunting. And I think that that's part of what I find so frightening about his work. I was just about to bring that up, actually. So I'm glad you said that because when I read that in the, in the final issue of the first run of Marvel's alien, it's like, that, that's weird. That doesn't feel like alien to me. And then the realization, oh, no, no, it's Giger. It's that, you know, it's that idea of we can move beyond human by incorporating this into ourselves. And what's that going to do to us? And it's not pretty. It's, you know, when you look at, at, at his artwork, Gears artwork, there's just that um, it's body horror, but it's also, it's, it's a violation. It's a desecration. And, and obviously there's re religious overtones to all of his work, but boy, um, I wish that the series had somehow continued a dialogue with him. I feel like and we were going to talk about this with both aliens and alien three, there was such a misstep. And after that, he wasn't, he wasn't really included. I think the beautiful dichotomy of here is that uh, the design itself is like holy alien, right? I mean, it, it defines the actual word. It's unlike anything we've ever seen. And yet, like you were saying, it, it is the most human like, and to me, nothing is more terrifying than other humans. Nothing. You, you know, and every movie, right? It's always the humans are like the worst enemy. Um, you know, and I don't want to bring gender into this, but being, a, you know, a woman, there is something innately frightening. Like you guys were talking about, like going into the woods last time and like being, you know, like having the, the, the predatory sort of, you know, what's in the woods, but even then, like we can kill things as a woman, there is this innate horror of, you know, wanting to find a me. And is this me going to kill me? Is mm -hmm. this person that I could potentially love 
going to be the death of me. Right. And it's something, I mean, obviously men can have that fear too, but I think it's just, it's innately built into us where we're biologically programmed to, you know, operate from our, that instinct of something's not right here. I'm walking down this path and I can feel something's not right. And I think that dichotomy of being so different and yet strangely human is frightening, is absolutely terrifying to me. And I think, you know, again, I love aliens, but I think it, you know, to me, insects aren't as frightening as humans, you know, so uh, they're, they're scary in different ways. The whole parasitism of them. Yes. But the, the, the human aspect of what is this thing going to do to me? Because death is one of the scary, frightening things, but it's all of the other possibilities that are even worse to me. So, because a lot of his artwork is like you were talking about the Garden of Earthly Delights, you know, earlier, a lot of it is is overtly sexualized, and it's like acts that should be, you know, pleasurable. Like in in a different context, they would be like, you know, making love. But the way that it's shown in this like nightmare scape is so scary because it's because it reminds us of real things. Like for you know for example, like drug addiction, right? That's a great example of something where it starts off as something nice and as something that is an escape or something that, you know, allows you to sense something that is not of the world that you're currently experiencing. And then a lot of the time people get trapped in this loop of like, what happens when that dream stops? When I have to wake up again, I don't want to wake up again. I want to stay in the dream. It reminds us of these things that we fall into as humans, right? These patterns that we, these traps that we set for ourselves. Uh, there's there was one Giger artwork that I was looking at earlier when I was you know looking at posting something to our social media pages and I was uh, and I, I didn't end up doing it because it felt like it was too, like you know Facebook would like ban it or something. But it it was it was like very it was it was like an Ouroboros of two figures engaged in oral sex with each other, uh, and it was like, so like let's find and put it on Facebook. But it was a Giger artwork, so it was like you know kind of abstract a little bit. It was sort of unclear exactly what was going on. But it was like, if they are doing this for eternity, that's terrifying, right? It's a lot of these things that are like recognizable human things that are then like transformed into something horrifying. And yeah, I, I think that like, if if you can get a film that recaptures that, like Christian was saying and Andy were saying, like that to me would be an, an incredibly alien experience. And Noah Hawley, again, Noah, thank you for listening. Clever girl is sitting on this amazing opportunity to do that because the themes that we know he's looking to deal with are the things that we're talking about. What happens when we push ourselves in the pursuit of capitalism? What happens when we enter a space race we're not prepared for and the frontier isn't the horizon, the frontier is our own bodies. The frontiers is artificial intelligence. The frontiers is the apparatuses we surround ourselves with, right? What does that mean we will be willing to do in the pursuit of science? It's a fucking scary thought because that actually happens in the world all the time. And that I think is uh, just extremely alien. Great. I think that's a probably a good place to wrap for now. We'll convene again and talk more about alien three and the iteration there just in more in depth and then into even in resurrection. I think that there's some things to discuss uh, about where the creature goes in terms of its legacy, in terms of what Giger designed and where it ended up and was it successful. And then I hate to say this. Um, <laughs> I hate to say this, but the creature is then pushed further in the AVP films. Not that they're even in the same sphere as the, the canon canonical films that we discuss, but I think it's worthy of discussion because what I believe is it has degraded over time and degraded and degraded. And I think the prequels 
certainly in Covenant, they revived it a little bit. What we saw, even though it wasn't the big chap, it was more in line with what Giger had designed. It looked more familiar. It looked terrifying. It didn't have that, like, by the time we saw it in AVP Requiem, the head was all distended. There's these huge gaps in its mouth. It didn't look right. It looked like bad cosplay or good cosplay. Um, and I think that it's worthy of discussion to see, like, what happened discuss what happened to it and look at the iterations of it and see why that happened, um, why it's degraded. Now there could be rights issues. I know there are rights issues in place in certain, in certain ways where they can only do certain things or they're going to have to pay the Giger estate. Um, we, we can get into that, but I think uh, there's definitely a lot more to talk about. Absolutely. And a special thank you to Jason Judah or Huda. You need to tell me which which way it's pronounced, uh, who just joined us on Patreon. If you want to join Jason and all the other awesome people who are currently on board the Nostrome, the, the Nostrome, the Aranome with us, you can go to perfectorganism.com slash support, or you can search us on Patreon. We just uh, today recorded another edition of Sublime Noise, our new Patreon-exclusive series discussing film scores on Under the Skin, that movie that we brought up a number of times tonight. Incredible score by Mika Levi. Uh, we also just recently put up Interstellar. We put up Annihilation, as Christian alluded to earlier, which is one of my favorite science fiction films of all time, uh, you know, not even just the last decade. There's uh, a lot of great stuff going on with Patreon. If you want to check it out, head over there and uh, give us your support. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.